KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, KPFB 89.3 in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, You're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, K248BR 97.5 in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. Up next, cover to cover, we're Jennifer Stone. Stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. Your picture drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with a reading from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue, then first published oh long ago in nineteen seventy-seven. Never can suffer enough in one lifetime to leave a mark as big as a pea hole in the Antarctic. River blindness has not struck you down. There is no little black fly at the corner of your eye. You have not walked naked into the gas chambers in the death camp to shield your child from the last terror in the dark. You have never held in your fist the fragment of stone soap they gave the prisoners going to the poison showers. You have not walked down to the sea and set forth a lantern upon the water to sail out to the soul of your father, burnt to a shadow at Hiroshima. You have no share in these things. You have not even been permitted to suffer hard enough to know yourself. You sad survivor, telling tales to tape. How can I go on living with you? Oh, still... Once more, so breakfast can continue to continue. I forgive you, old woman. I wish you roses sick or roses well. Having showered and had my orange juice, I put on my new ice blue nightgown. Bury myself in the sleeping bag once more. I look at the William Blake poem on the cover of my English paper. The Thick Rose 
Oh, Rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night, in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy. And his dark, secret love does thy life destroy. I'm damned if I'll lose any sleep over insomnia. I tuck Willie Blake under the bed and sink down deeper into the sleeping bag. Faintly, I hear Sam say to Simon, Well, she looks embalmed. Let's go to the donut shop before she wakes up. Noon the same day. Sam and Simon come home from the donut shop with glazed jelly rolls. Within walking distance of our apartment, there is not only a donut shop, but a Taco Bell, Sizzler, Red Barn, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Straw Hat Pizza, Copper Penny, Foster's Freeze, Chicken Delight, Jack in the Box, McDonald's, Fish and Chips, Casper's, and The Pup Hut. I pontificate to my bored children about junk food, about the general malaise, about television, about what Philistines they are, about their media minds, about the integrity of the image cluster, until Sam tells me, I'm a pain in the brain, he splits to visit his girlfriend. Sam's girlfriend is a vanilla blonde this year. She cooks for him. I look in my mirror at Lilith, she who destroys her demon children. I get Sam and Simon mixed up with the world like a cannibal mama mouse. The more they argue, the faster I eat them. They are part of the patriarchy, whether they will or no. Male, chauvinist, piglets, baby machos. (sighs) Sam will always find a woman to feed him. He deserves it. Simon asks, if I'm enjoying my suffering, he says, if there were no suffering, it would be necessary for me to invent it. He calls me a megalomasochist, sacred cow and suffering mama. I pick up a copy of The Height Report and throw it at his head. He exits laughing. I sit on the floor, fuming and frustrated. Where else in the world or in history would a woman in her 40s going into menopause be the guardian and guide of two emerging adolescent males? I try to sit calmly and get a grip on myself. I'm the adult. After a while, I hear little popping sounds coming from Simon's guitar. 
Maybe it's trying to tell me something. Maybe it's haunted. Finally, I go and examine it, turning it over and shaking it. A spoonful of Simon's Mexican jumping beans fall in my lap. Christmas 1975, Sam has decided he likes older women. He says they have brains. Mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. Actually, he likes them because he's lazy and they don't giggle. Embittered and 20, they know the score. The current one is very pretty, very soft. Beware, my son, I tell him. Beware of vanilla blondes who glow in the dark. Turns out she isn't old enough for him. After all, one night he comes home exasperated. Why, he wants to know. Why is it all these women talk about his babies? Well, I tell him, if you don't know that yet, then your sex education has been something of a flop. Oh, hell, he protests. One thing doesn't have to lead to another. New Year's Eve, 1975. On New Year's Eve, I always consider giving up the grape. I consider and then I reconsider. My excuse is my conviction that drinking goes with scribbling. It's an old trick. Elizabeth Barrett was a junkie, that kind of thing. What were they drinking? All the literati. All poets are lushes, but not all lushes are poets. We've had a few sober poets and any number of sober writers, although not in Ireland, with the notable exception of George Bernard Shaw, who was perhaps pure spirit and so didn't need any. This evening, after a cup of wine, I begin to think in simple similes. The writer as a drink. Henry Miller as dark beer with a chaser. Thomas Mann as after-dinner brandy on an empty stomach. Anais Nin as a strong, sweet, distilled liqueur. That sort of thing. Then I had another cup of wine, and I began to see them drinking. (laughs) And sometimes why? Jane Austen, sipping lemon tea with minted leaves, sometimes looking out the window into the trees. Colette, swallowing sweet breakfast chocolate, absinthe stains on the bedside table, an aperitif in the afternoon 
on the sly in a cafe he never frequents. Virginia Woolf, out for a treat, but only once a week. A long walk first, and then scones to go with. George Sand smoked the little cigars first, then she drank a few sips of whatever he was pouring, later watering it down, so she could write while he slept. Sigrid Unset drank the mead of medieval myth, like the Nordic maiden she was, Catholic to the core, the wafer and the wine. My old friend Jake says she's a bore, so I told him to go take a flying leap in the fjord after all, didn't she win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928? Uh, and Jake said, oh, well, the only time I try to read her stuff. Hell, I, I thought she was an historian. George Eliot took tea with the usual toast. But no liquor left when the party's over. He drank, of course, but... Finally, only when she did, and it was love without marriage, no fooling. Then I had another cup of wine, and I got a little lurid. A 19th century storm was raging. I opened the windows, looked out over the moors, and there they were, the Victorian ghosts, those Christian souls muttering, mea culpa, I felt an acute attack of brontephobia coming on now. The name Bronte means thunder. And brontephobia is the fear of thunder and lightning, but of course it's them I'm afraid of, Heathcliff and the rest. Once in my dreams... Emily stood slicing the tomatoes she threw at me. She took the largest slice from the center and dropped it over her head. All the seeds turned to gemstones and the wet red swam around her in a cloak. The laughter of Pan poured from her throat. Still dreaming, I ran until I fell into the lurid mist of that third watercolor Jane Eyre showed to Mr. Rochester. I was drowning in the sea of that picture, reaching for the gold bracelet around the neck of the black cormorant. I woke up drenched in sea salt sweat. Oh! Oh, for my sake, Charlotte, could you, at least in my dreams, take a real drink like a simple Irishman and put away the spirits of ammonia and treacle sin syrup laced with hot chocolate desire? Emily Bronte died in 1848 at the age of 29. I think 
she drank hemlock straight. Anne Bronte died the following year when she too was 29, asking to be taken to Scarborough because she'd never seen the sea. They buried her there instead of at Haworth Parsonage, so she does not walk night after night the way the others do. Charlotte lived to be 39. She died of tuberculosis and pregnancy. Time to go for a walk. Walk to the store in the rain, buy another bottle of Burgundy, get out my list. Ernest Hemingway. Bourbon on the rocks, I suppose. What do I know? Whatever he was drinking, it wasn't that that killed him. F. Scott Fitzgerald. The drink that fires the dream and burns the body alive. Dylan Thomas. Beer for breakfast and any and everything else never took coffee or tea. Bitters all day and real booze when the work was done. Anais Nin. Thimbles of desperate distilled liqueurs each day in her diary. Wine at formal places in gardens of prose poems. Blood if needed. Blood for lovers who couldn't, never would, or shouldn't drink. Gertrude Stein preferred food to drink, serving alphabet vegetable soup for an entree and beef tenderloin for those who eat words. Cakes and plum brandy for those who stay till the end. Melantha was one of three, each one as she may. And Alice. Sylvia Plath. Thistles. And yes, she drank them. Isaac Tennyson. Time and the history of the heart of ancient woman. She could smell the sea of Africa before the land rose. Tony Morrison. Pack up all your cares and woes. Bye-bye, blackbird. There was a time, she says, when Africans could fly. This was a time before salt. There are words for women, she says. There are ways to know a whore is a lover, a servant is a laborer, and a mammy is a mother. Laughter and jungle red wine. Black women, she says, seem less alone. Look at the literature. 
Anna Karenina has no woman friend to trust. Madame Bovary had no auntie to straighten her out. All the way to that Irish trash, Scarlet O'Hara, white women in books seem to be going about the business of the acquisition of a male or males. And, of course, they are damned if they get them and damned if they don't. Tony writes now, as it comes out of then. Black woman wisdom doesn't divide. Joseph Conrad drank the salt from the sea. Never set foot on land again. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. D.H. Lawrence, wine and wine and wine and wine and more of that, but well drunk for a dying man. T.S. Eliot, dandelion wine, dearie, laced with the blood of the lamb. Oh, it's time to pour again. I hope someone's counting my drinks. Elizabeth Barrett uh, drinking her tea, laced with laudanum, the wine of opium, the wine of love and leisure, with an Englishman of letters, off to Italy for Baroque. She went to visit George Sand. Elizabeth, taking note that although she did not observe Madame Sand to smoke, it was, however, deeply to be regretted that Madame Sand surrounded herself with so many persons of the ragged red or lower theatrical types. <laughs> Mary Shelley could have used a drink nothing could mask the odor of death in her life, the child stillborn, and all those she loved, either dead or monsters or both. Christina Rossetti drowned deep in the holy water at the font, then Sips from her brother Dante Gabriel's unholy cup, Belladonna, Belladonna, deadly nightshade, a spiritual opium at last, in the Garden of Solomon, where she slept alone. Dorothy Parker drank gin from a flask in the ladies' room and mix drinks in public at cocktail parties with her heart tucked inside her handbag, sealed in a plastic wrap. Edna St. Vincent Millay drank wine from his grapes when he was around, but she carried her own flask and she traveled. 
Emily Elizabeth Dickinson drove herself from drink, insisting thought could think, until at last she fell in love with death, the sweetest drunkard we can know. One last time I reach for the wine. The year is done and temperance has not touched me. <laughs> Come, fill the cup. The bird of time has but a little way to fly. And lo, the bird is on the wing. I put the ruby out uh, on the table by my bed, yes. Sappho drank the Aegean Sea in one long lost song. John Donne, quite undone by his dear dead wife, and Donne, swallowed his pride and published. Footnote, Anne Dunn and Moore married John Dunn in 1601. She was 17. She died at the age of 33. She had borne her husband 12 children, of whom seven survived her. Sartre, sweet John Paul, drank every and nothing at all, insisting they were both the same. Oh, Samuel Beckett, the bone of the existential echo, drinks the desert dry, a nihilist in love, no sweat. I suppose I should mention the old man last. Romeo and Juliet, Act Five, Scene Three. Oh, churl, drunk all, left no friendly drop to help me after I will kiss thy lips. Haply some poison doth yet hang on them to make me die. January 1976. Oh, to live in little Albany, here on the edge of Berkeley in this bicentennial year. Simon has run up an American flag, only 48 stars. It's on his television aerial. You've been listening to the voice of Jennifer Stone, reading from her memoir, Telegraph Avenue, Then. You can listen to all the chapters in our archives online at kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money.
Join KPFA for our next monthly movie matinee as we screen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a movie regarded by many critics as one of the greatest films of the 21st century, starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michelle Gondry. This film asks the question, is science strong enough to erase the power of human connection? Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. So join us on Saturday, January 26th at 3 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater as we travel into the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and discover the power of the human heart to rise above man-made scientific predictions. For ticket information, visit kpfa.org or thenewparkway.com. This is a KPFA benefit. Vandana Shiva is coming to Berkeley. The world-renowned Indian scholar, environmental activist, and exceptionally wise writer has authored more than 20 books, including Who Really Feeds the World and Making Peace with the Earth. Vandana will join Vijaya Nagarajan to discuss Feeding a Thousand Souls, Women, Ritual, Ecology in India. This is the terrific new book by Vijaya. She writes... Millions of Tamil women throughout Southeast Asia wake up before dawn to create the kolam, a ritual design on the thresholds of their homes. They've been doing this for thousands of years. Find out why on February 11, a Monday evening at 7.30, when these two remarkable women will converse at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. Find tickets at brownpapertickets.com and East Bay Indie Bookstores. Vandana Shiva, Vijaya Nagarajan, February 11th. You're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, K248BR 